Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 25th, 2014, and this is episode 1308 of the Survival Podcast. We're out a little bit later than uh, usual today. It'll be after 3 o'clock before this show goes live, and you may be wondering why. You may think it's because uh, I'm still recovering from the uh, event. And it, it is a little bit, but not really. As you can hear, my voice is pretty well back to normal. Um, actually, the reason this one's going out late is because I had an ad hoc interview request. Somebody wanted to come on the air, someone that I would always let on the air, and that person is no less than Jeff Lawton. Jeff wants to be on TSP. He's one of the few people that I will work in at any time. Uh, given I had him uh, worked in for today, and we've got two more interviews this week, I decided to run his interview today. So that's why the interview and the show itself are a little bit late. Did it about as early as we could. Jeff got up at 5.30 a.m. his time to be on the show with us, and I'll have him on the air with you in just a moment. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical, all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle. You will find it at Sawtooth Tactical. From Magpul Magazines to Maxpedition Bags and everything else in between, Check out sawtac.com, nestled in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho and uh, run by veterans, veteran-owned, veteran-operated company. You know things are going to get done right. They're going to take care of you. They have everything you can think of in the tactical world, including the awesome, manly, massive titanium sport. Check them out today, sawtac.com. Next up today... Ready-made resources, the company that is what it, or does what it is, does what it, wow, did I mess that up? Ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on your, on their website. They'll ship it right to your door. And I mean everything, the practical, the tactical, guns, gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it there from 12-volt appliances for your solar and wind projects to the stuff that actually builds solar and wind projects to the tactical stuff for your firearms or if you're local or have an FFL they can ship to, even firearms themselves, ammunition, long-term food storage, you name it, they've got it, readymaderesources.com. Please remember that ready-made resources, Sawtooth Tactical, both do discounts for the member support brigade. Before you buy from them, check out the uh, benefits section there. To, uh, to see if they have a discount that works for you. I want to mention our MSB discount vendor of the day. Every day I mention one company that's not an official sponsor but does a discount for you guys because in addition to the sponsors, there's over 30 companies that do just that. Today's discount vendor that I'm recognizing for their support of the show is Dark Angel Medical. The veteran-owned business has combined over 20 years of medical training at work in both military and civilian healthcare fields. Uh, with a concentration in emergency and critical care medicine. They provide a 10% discount for all products, including, including the DARC, which is the Direct Action Response Kit, and uh, the IFAK, Individual First Aid Kit. You'll find them at darkangelmedical.com. Again, 10% discount on both of those kits. Uh, check them out today. Again, darkangelmedical.com. On that note, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. 
You'll help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents per episode. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, or a first responder active duty or prior service like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount if you join the Member Support Brigade. Just email me with service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences about your service, and I'll get back to you with that discount code if you email me, wait for it, before... Not after you join. After you join, it's a big mess to try to backfill and make it work. I, the system doesn't work. I really can't do it. So you guys are supposed to be procedure-minded in those worlds. That's the procedure before you, not after you join. Anyway, the MSB gives you discounts to a great deal of stuff, like the stuff we mentioned today. Gives you over $150 worth of free videos. Gives you weekly-ish MSB-only update videos. We won't have one uh, probably for you this week. We might do one this week. This is a... Uh, Kind of a jammed up week with the event that we had go out, but uh, we'll get another one up there for you soon. There's some other old videos that have been there forever that are available nowhere else. Um, it's just a great deal. It's a, a product that more than pays for itself at 50 bucks a year or $5 a month. So when you get done with today's show, if you think, well, that was worth 20 cents, consider joining and get a good ROI. Uh, with that, uh, I don't want to leave this uh, hanging at all because it is a long interview with a really great guy who, again, got up at 5.30 in the morning to be here with us today. So with that, let me just say, hey, Jeff, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hey, Jeff, I've had you on a bunch of times. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Frankly, um, as the person I consider my greatest teacher in permaculture, um, it's an honor. Uh, but with that said... I have tons of people here that I have switched on to permaculture now, and one of the big things they run into is when they talk to their family and friends about it, and they say permaculture, they kind of looked at kind of weird and sideways and what have you, and like they don't really get what what they're talking about. And when they try to explain it, it all often seems like they make it worse. So for you, who's been teaching this, I think since '83 or something like that, or that's when you took your first PDC. How would you answer that question when you're talking to you know, the uninitiated? What is permaculture? I think one of the skills in permaculture is to keep it concise and keep it reasonably simple to start the process because permaculture is inevitably complicated by nature and it's, um, it's a good complication. But if people just need to know initially it's a system of design and it's based in science. Um, it starts with ethics. So you could say, you could build on that and say, well, it's an ethical design science. It's using science, et, science ethically to design our way out of the problems we have, especially the problems that are damaging the environment. So you can build again and say, well, it's, it's a system of design that provides all our needs in a way that benefits the environment and, and improves the environment as we provide our needs. And if, if then you get asked, well, can you elaborate? You have to then go on and say, well, it, it, it provides the needs that we have on a regular basis. Um, it keeps our air clean. It keeps our water clean and improves our water quality everywhere. It improves our food quality in such a way that the production of food actually benefits the environment. Um, and, and we go on then and say, you know, well, the way we provide our housing and um, makes it is, is, Uh, designed in a way that is real common sense, um, where, where our, our infrastructure and our housing, our built systems actually can be replaced easily with, with natural resources. And, and, and they double function and they multifunction. They, they heat themselves, they cool themselves, um, and they perform 
they don't just they're not just objects or or you know uh, stylized and then you know waste systems energy systems and and you just kind of you have to build a picture as the inquiry comes in so you, i think it's best not to stick to one uh, definition, but to just start slowly with people. It's just a system of design to start with. It's just a design system. That's all it is. Nothing weird. Uh, quite common sense. It's based in, in, in the provable sciences. Not, 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 no metaphysics, just provable stuff. And then, but it has ethics. Uh, and we, and then if people want to know what the ethics are, we can go into the ethics, which are, you know, first off, it, it cares for the environment and then it cares for people and it returns surplus to that same thing. And and so you, you sort of inevitably um, lead into being a little bit of a, an educator um, by defining permaculture. I agree. I mean, I've always used no matter what, because you try to always answer the question to the person asking it and what they're going to understand and where they're coming from. But the word design science has been in every single uh, answer I've ever given to that question. And I like that you start immediately talking not just about growing trees and, and animals, but housing and, and energy audits and things like that as well. Because I'll take it even further out. I'll say to somebody, I can take this design science, look at a business. And I don't mean a farm. I mean a business that does software development. And we could design a business with permaculture because it is a design science. It's, it's almost like asking, well, what is ecology or what is physics? And, and I think that that's the, the, the point of demarcation between a lot of people that really get, understand, and implement permaculture in a big way and people that just see it as, you know, planting some trees and, and, and chanting a few words. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, whatever we uh, whatever, whatever we pl- apply permaculture to as a system of design, it makes it more beneficial to the environment. It makes it more ethical. Um, and the, the only things we couldn't apply permaculture to are things that are only negative. Yeah, and that's yeah. you know really evil activities. That, that's a great point. We would have a hard time building a permaculture uh, ethic based society around something like clubbing baby seals. Like we we couldn't pull that one off. But give us something that's not like completely morally evil, and we can make it work. That's right. Yeah. So you have a PDC coming up. Uh, a lot of folks have been asking me when it's going to launch, um, and then a lot of people have been asking me a lot about PDCs lately, like. What is a PDC really? Is it worth it? Should I take one? Uh, so can you start out with what exactly a permaculture design course is and maybe a little bit of what it isn't? Because I think some people think that, like, um, it's, a, it's a, a course on botany, and that's really not the, the angle that you're coming at. You're not going to leave with a, a list of a 1,000 plants and their Latin names. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, um, this is the second time we've launched it. Uh, online course and the first one we really enjoyed because it worked so well and um, the results continue to replicate out so um, I, I launched the online course in a different way because um, I could only I, I can't I can only teach the way I teach and and so I tried to make it as live time and, and, and as and as animated and as direct to camera as possible with um, a lot of um, footage and reference material uh, from projects that I've worked on around the world and in different climates and different locations from urban to rural. And um, I've had, um, I'm in my 13th year of working with the same cameraman, filmmaker, editor. So we've got quite a um, a working relationship. We've made all our DVDs together and 
and um, a lot of our promo films and a lot of my presentations. So we, we sort of work intuitively together. Um, and um, it seemed to work really well. And then, then we've, we, we answered a lot of questions. Um, and I'm, I really went out of my way to answer tens of thousands of questions, actually, um, to camera uh, that were asked in the, in the uh, design course online. And I answered straight to camera. So that, that, all that's kind of worked. And now we've built on it. Um, we've got some extra um, equipment and some extra uh, footage, a lot of extra footage actually, and um, we've um, been able to apply different techniques to the footage and we know what people want. We've, um, we've fielded the questions um, on purpose so we can um, understand a lot more about what the doubts people have and what they're uncertain about. So we're going to really try and fill the gaps in on the next one. So we're kind of thinking this is going to be a, an annual event because it's more of an event. It launches on the 29th of March and it'll, uh, it'll be open for um, a week, maybe less, but it'll be maybe a week or 10 days. And then we, and then we start because, uh, um, it's it's an event that happens over a period of time over over 12 weeks. You get um, a section of the course each week and a whole interactive uh, forum where people can talk to each other and they can talk to us and and um, and we can um, um, field the questions for each week. So I've got a PDF coming out um, very soon in the next uh, week. Uh, there should be a PDF on JeffLawton.com that'll explain. The course in full with all the, the color graphics, all the uh, course notes, um, an explanation um, of how it all works because um, it's a little bit different to a normal sort of course and um, it's different in a way you know, that it works. That, that's the thing. The students have really become very active. A lot of our students stay with us. They're, they're still with us from the last online and they're on – they're on – Answering questions through all our, our videos already. They're very, they're the most active students I've ever produced. So, uh, are, you, are you kind of surprised by that? That in all of these years, I, th I think I mentioned that I, my my knowledge of your history goes back to about '83. I think you took a PDC with Bill, and you started teaching pretty soon after that, anyway. And you've taught, I, I would imagine, thousands of classes over the years that you go and you do something completely radical and different. It's something a lot of people probably figured wouldn't work. And it produced the most active, immediate results you've ever seen. I was. I was very surprised. I was very, very surprised. I, I, I was hoping that it would work well, um, and at least as well as a face-to-face -face course. But it was a lot more um, surprising. I was, so I was very happy. Um, but surprised, uh, you kind of uh, build a new train track and put a new train on it, and suddenly it takes off like a rocket. Um, well, you just got to keep up with it, um, and, and that was great. Um, but it sort of changed uh, our approaches to a few things because we just want to get better results for people, and it's wonderful to see all these people endorsing. I want to have hundreds of endorsements and, and some incredible stories, and also we were able to get to people help people that couldn't get to a PDC. They're stuck in a situation out on a farm or they're, they're looking after ch uh, children or they're busy in a job or they're looking after older parents or there's some reason or they themselves are, have, have some kind of disability, they can't uh, travel or something. Um, but people all over the world are interacting through it. So um, it's been a, a, a great thing to do and I, I hope to help other people do the same thing. So um, it was uh, it was a great pleasure to see the the effect 
And I didn't mind working really hard to do it. And we've, we've continued. I'm pretty sure we've improved it. So what people get out of it is they get a completely different view of the world um, and often a positive view. So um, I think that's the only reason that I can be so positive about the subjects that I tackle every day is because of permaculture. I think if it wasn't for permaculture, you know, I'd, I'd be screaming to, to, to lock your bunker door or something like that because nothing else actually gives me a solution. The problems are so in our face that they're obvious, but then the solution is, well, vote for somebody else or something nonsensical like that, where permaculture gives me an action plan. I can go, okay, well, if food is going to be in crisis, then I can go out and establish these perennial food systems that won't just feed me and my family but my neighbors, and I can begin to actually see the results, and I can start to understand that the place that I look at and go, that place is a worthless piece of land and realize the potential of that land is enormous. And I don't know about you, but like the first time I really got permaculture, I'd drive down the highway and I started looking at highway medians and shoulders and, and things like that and going swale, terrace, swale, terrace, and starting to realize that if we really wanted to switch this on, and if we're ever put into a point where it's, it's either do it or die, that the potential is there to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, many people have, uh, have, have said that, you know, have completely changed their view of the world and now um, they've got a real positive uh, approach and they can see, you know, what effectively they can do, um, how they can design their way out of these uh, these issues um, that were, were seen unsurmountable before. So um, it's, it's kind of neat that, um, you know, in, in all kinds of fields we've been able to help people um, and... Um, I, I, I get quite touching endorsements every day. Um, I'm just looking for one now um, that um, I got yesterday. Um, and um, it's um, – I, can I just read this to you, Jack? Because I know you're an ex-military uh, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, it, and, um, and, and this, this message came in through the Permaculture Voices uh, organization, and it says uh, – as an unemployed Afghan war veteran trying to make sense of life after multiple tours of duty, watching Jeff's videos quickly became my prefer preferred way to calm the chaos inside my soul. In two years' time, with the help of permaculture, I have been transformed from an emotional wreck to the first employee of a new startup farm. Wow. wow. And I'm like, well, that alone is worth, you know, you know, you it's sort of touching people's, okay, well, now things make sense because, you know, somebody there in a bit of trouble, um, they've been through a bit. And, and you know, you think, well, if you can you can help people like that and uh, there's multiple um, endorsements that have come in and say, well, you really helped me calm down. You helped me see sense in the world and, and I can go into action and, and, and feel meaningful. And a lot of us, well, I think all of us need that. <laughs> And if we can do that for people, I think we can get our way out of this situation. Um, so and I should tell you, based on my my group of people that I you know speak to primarily, there's a lot of military people, and that's not a unique story. Maybe the result in in being an employee at a farm is a little unique, but um, this thinking changing lives, especially in people that have been through war, is not at all. Uh, unusual in this day and age. At the last event we just did, we had several people here who are former military. We had one guy that was basically working right up till now as a contractor uh, in Afghanistan that said, I'm done. 
and he's got he's got a place down in near Houston now. He's uh, he's he's producing sixty percent of his family's food, and you know he's looking toward building something a lot more positive. And I've had people tell me things like one guy in Colorado said he was literally sitting in bed with a gun in his mouth one day, and that this type of thinking is what would change that for him. So yeah. it's uh, that that's pretty earth shattering. And at the same time, like. Um Say PRI US uh, PRI Sunshine Coast, which is our, our um, permaculture research institute north of here, about four hours north of us, a little bit closer to the um, true subtropics. Um, we're building. Tom Kendall there is building uh, a methane gas digest- digester mm-hmm. um, to prove uh, methane gas digestion from some of his uh, dairy cows and, and and animal manure on the farm. And he's using the uh, American model from Afghanistan that's being promoted in Afghanistan by the American uh, troops. So he's actually he's actually building the, the the American military model. So at the other end of the scale, we've got right things going on too. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think that what we do in permaculture is if it works and it doesn't hurt anybody or anything, then we'll we'll, we'll grab it, we'll plug it in, and we'll use it. And I think that that openness and that innovativeness is what makes the permaculture science a unique science. Like, instead of having 72 peer-reviewed studies before we move forward with something, we're just like, there's 72 of us just doing it, and then we all report back to each other, this worked, this didn't work, and somebody says, this didn't work, and somebody says, well, I tried that, but if you add this, that'll work. And people share that information instead of guarding it. Yeah. They stay objective, um, and, um, you know, we're open to... Um, take on the innovations that work. And if it comes formally and it's endorsed by um, even the military and formal formal endorsement, that's fine. Or if it's just someone has said, we've trialed it and it's worked, we're open to it. Um, and unfortunately, people do kind of think it subjectively, the opposite is like, oh, that is just one subject. Or it can only be with this inclusion. No, it can, be, it, it can have an incredible variability. It's, it's a, a very, very flexible. Um, people need to understand that you don't. You're not signing up to something that says you have to have a mud brick house or you, you have yeah, yeah. to have uh, solar power. No, you can you can go about it any way you like. Um, it, it's it's an approach to the way you live. Um, so you 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 have you get a better result for yourself and a better result for the environment around you. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Jeff, because I, I've tried to explain this to people that are on, like, I guess the fringe of the all or nothing type of thinking. And my comment always been to them, if I have a soccer mom that has a giant SUV and lives a modern lifestyle, but I can get her at least to put food in her backyard that's going to feed her kids nutritious, healthy food and get her to take the first step, I'm not going to sit here and beat her about the head and shoulders about the rest of the things in her life. I feel if we get people walking on a path, then the natural progression is another step down the path. And I think if we go into an all-or-nothing model, we chase away the very people that we most need to reach. I mean, teaching permaculture to hippies is like shooting fish in a barrel. Teaching permaculture to blue-collar, middle-class America and, and the developed nations like Australia, the U.K., et cetera, around the world, that's where the most opportunity is. That's where the greatest amount of wealth is. That's where the greatest opportunity to change things is. And if we can change all of those people by even 10%, we've made a massive difference. And that's more important than being right about an ideal. It's more important to get the action done with provable results. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We've just got to get people to start to move from their comfort zone 
um, and realize they're moving to a more comfortable zone. So if you're, if you're taking your recycling um, to, the, to the dump in your, in your Lamborghini, well, it's a start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least you're okay. recycling, right? <laughs> you'll go even further than I was that that's awesome so I want to talk a little bit about a person building a career in permaculture um, we've, I've heard from you that some of the students from your first online PDC are already taking clients they're already up and running with a business and, I, and I'd like to talk about some different aspects of permaculture because I think one problem that we have in permaculture is a lot of people take their PDC uh, and then they go teach PDCs, and that's their business as a whole. And I think that's like there's only so much room to take that approach. And the reality is that it, most people won't be able to survive in a business if that's all that they do. And there's a lot more diversity that can be created. And I liken it to like a, if you planted a farm and you were going to follow permaculture principles, you wouldn't plant corn and beans. You would plant hundreds and hundreds of plants, and you would diversify the ecosystem and diversify the productivity. And if you're going to have a permaculture practice, it should be more than just PDCs and consulting. There should be diversification there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people don't realize that it can be applied in so many different areas. Um, generally, if you, if I think if you just um, say what are the main threads, what are the main themes, uh, you do have education, then you have design and consultancy, uh, which kind of lead together, um, and then you have the practitioners who actually do, um, you know, go into uh, some kind of physical practice. So I think those are the main main streams. Uh, and then the variations of, of those, there are many types of education, it's not just PDCs, uh, there's many, many branches of specialty that people need. Um, and then uh, design, um, there's a lot of consultancy out there. I, I'm, go, I'm taking my 23 interns I have here at the farm today to a consultancy and the clients won't be there. They're in Singapore, but they're looking at 130 acres near here. And the real estate agent who who endorses what we do is is showing us the property. Now, if it, it hasn't been sold yet, they're going to put in an offer on my recommendation. But the God, real estate agent, the real estate agent trusts me, um, and I've already I'm, I'm I'm they've agreed to let my 23 interns walk around with me. Um, so I'm showing them how I would approach that as a consultant, and I'm going to explain what is possible. So that's a consultancy working for clients through a real estate agent at the potential of purchase. Yeah, it's a pre-purchase property consultation, which is if you're going to invest lots of money in property, that's an extremely valuable service because there's a lot of times people think, well, since I saw Jeff green the desert, I can just buy any old rock anywhere and things will be great. And you can make things really hard for yourself. Yeah. I mean, often you have to ask how much experience have you got and how much you're prepared to learn. Um, and learning on the job can be, uh, can create quite a lot of, dis you can be become quite disillusioned because uh, it can be hard work and mistakes you make. So we try and save people with that. But there's that's just an initial, I think there's a whole industry there in assessing land for people, pre-purchase. But then it goes right through. So... If they purchase this land, they're going to want me to design different elements of it. And again, it will be a more intense consultancy. But I, I might then employ a designer. 
So I've, I've got the concept and I then propose it to someone who has better IT skills than myself and they then sit there with me or I, I, I describe it to them and they put it down as a design. They do the actual digital graphics. Um, they actually lay out the, the, the whole system in a, in a way that the client will appreciate it and, and be able to use it and add to it later themselves. So that, you know, actually putting the design down, you know, today very rarely do you use a graphic artist who puts pen to paper. It's all some kind of um, Photoshop over Google Earth or, you know, SketchUp over Google Earth with a, with a um, uh, contour map. And um, we have some of my students have, have written blogs on exactly how to make a, your own contour map using Google Earth and SketchUp, and, and they're exp explained on blogs. But uh, people can specialize in, in, in design presentation and then design specialty, and it can drill down and drill down and drill down. Um, and and the, what you need is to be able to show people those examples. You need um, all of those up on um, website that are open for people. Now, what I've been able to do with the online course is get an enormous amount of high-quality design work presented in, in, in numerous styles, and I will be presenting that soon uh, to the world as a site that people can go to and say, wow, that's what permaculture design can look like. Wow. Um, and then, because it's kind of surprising what people have presented, and I'll go from the very basics right through to the most sophisticated of designs so people can say uh, and and i think then consultants can use that be able to use it as as a, a choice of, of presentation styles i'd like you to present like that please or just give me one of those it's just simple or no, people, people will pay for it so i have a fellow consultant here uh, just lives about 300 miles away from me, usually comes and uh, adjunctively teaches at my courses, and he's good with all this SketchUp, Google Earth stuff that I just, like, I don't know how to do it. So I've got this whole design that I've done in our food forest that we'll be planning next month, and I'm paying him to put the design to paper, not because I need the design, because I have it marked with flags. I know what's going in. But I want to be able to use it to teach and explain what this site looks like to others and I'm more than happy to pay him for that work because I'm not capable of doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's um, so. You know, people want that style. It's great. I also teach people just to do everything on your smartphone, <laughs> take photos, um, and I use what, simply what I use is a smartphone and a digital projector and a whiteboard, and I project over a whiteboard and draw with whiteboard markers over the photograph, uh, over the projection, and then photograph it and attach it into a, a Word document. And then I, 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 I talk to my smartphone, and then um, I get one of the girls in the office to type up the report with the attached photos. The very, very simple um, system of design. So I teach people to do it that way, and I can offer the very, very basic um, consultancy presentation of design, or they can go on to this lovely detailed document and or they can print it as a book if they want. So I just give people design choices, and I think then you go on to the practitioners and what they do, and it's it's innumerable what practitioners can do. I mean, there are permaculture um, designers who, who who work with infrastructure, houses, renewable energy systems, 
um, crop gardens, animal systems, animal crop combinations, aquaculture, nurseries, uh, tools. My son um, runs a website called Permaculture Tools, and he gets specialist tools made up. And, and that's become one of his specialties. It's a sideline to his consultancy business, uh, permaculture tools. Um, and and there are, there are, there's quite a lot of manufacturing potential, small business manufacturing, engineering companies that can make appropriate um, tools and equipment. So you go on to a, appropriate machines and applications. I'm, I'm now just getting, an, uh, uh, I've designed, using lots of, um, lots of, of um, tractor tools that are out there, tractor uh, implements, I've designed a combination together with a local uh, tractor supply company, um, a, a hilling tool that I can hill through my main crop garden and in, in a one-pass move I can make a, um, an 18-inch 18 wide, 18 wide crop bed with 14-inch wide um, um, footpaths so I can tram line, I can run the tractor back up and it only sits, the wheels only sit exactly on the footpaths and I don't cause any compaction on the bed. And um, yeah, it's interesting actually, the, 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 the plough foots that pull the footpaths up um, and leave the trench and build the bed are called an, an Alabama wing time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what they call them here in Australia and they come in different sizes and I've designed that so it fits exactly the size of the tyres on my little tractor and leaves a, a beautiful shaped bed if I have to reform, only if I have to reform on a crop garden and then I put my chickens over it and you know, I'd, so these are sort of applications. I'm, I'm now, I'm just about to release in a couple of weeks time, I'm very excited, I'm releasing a, a, a chicken composting system where I don't feed the chickens grain. It, I've already released a video about a large um, composting system where uh, a gentleman in Vermont, Carl Hammer, has been producing high quality compost incorporating chickens at the initial stage and he doesn't feed his chickens any supplementary feed. He just feeds them on the compost um, ingredients that he assembles at the, at the first two or three stages. I've mobilized that into a small system that can walk across property and leave um, three cubic meters of compost behind it every week. Um, and I've, I'm, I've, I've combined that to crop garden, but I want to offer that as a design through standard orchards that people want to diversify into more like a food forest. I, I, want, I want to apply it as a, as a system for people. And they, these are refinements. Um, and, and someone could manufacture that. I'm sure someone probably will if, when, if and when it works well enough and I've reported it well enough. And the opportunities are, are really big out there in the uh, practitioner's side, like the people who just go out there and do uh, well, uh, worth, worthwhile permaculture design applications. Nursery is a very big one. There's not enough good nurseries out there, especially in-grand stock nurseries, where you don't need to, uh, you don't need to purchase um, plant material in a pot. You can just and divide it yourself, uh, where it'd be a lot greater value. Jeff, we lost you for just a second there. Cause you, 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 you were saying you can just, and then something divide it yourself. We, we, we dropped you for like two seconds. Yeah, you, you, you just, 
Um, you don't buy a plant in a pot. You can buy it as a, a clump coming out of the ground and then divide it when you get it back to your property. Um, so you've got great value. And, of course, then there's seed companies. And there's, you know, there's, whole, there's a whole section of um, appropriate plants, appropriate seeds, and even breeds of animals that are, that are more suited to an area, uh, specifics, uh, living specifics. You know, Jeff, I'm going to be speaking at Voices like you are, and specifically on building permaculture as a profitable business. And I've got all these bullet points down here to ask you about, and you're just nailing my bullet points, like one after the other after the other. So that, that kind of makes me feel like I might be on the right track. So uh, I, that, that feels good. But I'd like to go into a few of them if we could. Um, one I want to talk about a little bit here is teaching and getting beyond teaching just PDCs and maybe Earthworks courses to actually teaching things that are more applicable to your students if you're building a practice locally. So I've seen people, and I, I'm like you, I wish everyone would take a PDC, but I also probably figure like it may not be the right thing for every single person. But there's a lot of people out there that they see what you're doing and they go, I just want to transform my backyard. And a local consultant to me should, you know, it's not becoming a master of botany or anything, but should really know plants that work well in their community and be able to teach courses on just designing small acreage and backyards in their location. And I think there's a tremendous student market for that because not everybody has the time or dedication to spend two weeks or even do it out over six months. And they just want to know what will work for me. And I think a lot of teachers miss that opportunity. Yeah. I'd agree that probably one of the largest markets is the urban market um, and people um, are very excited when I released uh, the um, DVD, uh, the videos that covered um, very, very small gardens um, and cold climate, what, what will work in a cold climate. It, was, um, uh, uh, it gave a, a lot of people hope and then how some community gardens are themed towards the, the local culture and they stretched species so that wow I can really get a small productive system together so um, I think we need models of those and we need models that uh, go off in all directions they can be just advertising models I, I, my one of my first um, moves in the urban area about 20 years ago was I made up a design that was um, uh, a model design of all the species of plants and trees that could go into a small garden and would fit, would actually fit in there without overcrowding. And then I listed those species and I illustrated a garden as if it existed. And people really loved that, even though it was just an illustration. Now we've made, I've tried to go around and find gardens that I can use as a video example. And, um, my recent uh, video that came out, Community Gardens, I'm in, um, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm in a, a Jamaican garden. I mean, they're all Jama <laughs> mostly Jamaican crops, and, and the Jamaican community had themed it towards Jamaica. Um, and then I was in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where I was in a Puerto Rican garden, and it was very, very heavily pushed in the in direction of the Puerto Rican uh, favored crops, which is really quite tropical, but they were, you know, you get two foot of snow there every year. In the same town, you've got Eric Tosmeyer, who's got 200 varieties of perennial crops, mm -hmm. towards just crops that live from year to year, um, that are quite rare. And if you, it, the exciting thing is when you put them all together, 
Um, you've got incredible food security. People just need to know this stuff. That's why I did it. And, and then not far away um, in Massachusetts, you've got UMass University Permaculture Garden, which won the White House Challenge. So when you sort of put them all together across America, um, it, it gives a lot of people hope. And, and therefore, all they need is like, give me a little bit of a design and I'm, I'm, I'm in for this. I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, it's not something weird. It's something very sensible. You know, you kind of hit on something there that I think is another big opportunity because you talked about nursery earlier, but even the consultant, practitioner, teacher that's working and building a local practice um, that has people around them that are teaching to do their backyard has an incredible opportunity with plant propagation sales. Perennial plants are expensive. And when I found out how easy it was to do grafting and, and root cuttings, I was kind of blown away at how easy it really is, but people don't have the knowledge to do it. And you mentioned Holyoke, so you're, you're talking about there, of course, Eric Tosemeyer and Jonathan Bates. And I know Jonathan propagates and sells a lot of plants. That's a big part of how they support themselves. Um, they actually sell a lot through uh, a, a company called Oikos here uh, in the States. I have a 25 pawpaws on order from them. Uh, which were probably propagated in, in a small backyard where you film that video. And that type of opportunity is immense as well, because if you start bringing these plants in that nobody's ever heard of, and they see how they work and see how they look and see how they taste, and they want them, it's not like they can just go down to a big box store nursery like Home Depot or Lowe's here in the States or whatever you guys have in Australia and pick them up in a six-pack carrier. It's a specialized thing. You have to order from a catalog, and they, they only deliver seasonally, and they're expensive, and then they're shipping. And, you know, the fact that you can you can actually offer those things – to a next-door neighbor or two blocks over is a tremendous value. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity that carries on expanding, too, because as more of us start to do this, what will happen is uh, the real research happens as it expands out on the ground, and then we'll see refined selections start to happen. So um, it doesn't just stop. This isn't something, oh, I've got to grab it now and, and like it's going to go right across America. As it goes across America, it will start to refine the selections by application. So you'll get the, the pawpaw variety that, that indicates it, it grows really well in that one region. And then those selections will get extended on. See, um, the funny thing that Jonathan uh, uh, Bates and, and Eric Tosmeyer say in the video that uh, I produced there was that they realized they had selected perennial plants that were, were good to eat, easy to grow, and really um, valuable to their small garden space. But then they realized they actually propagated very easily, and they were weeding them out because they were propagating across the garden, and they were taking up space on their own, so they needed diversity, so they wanted to just select diversity. So they were weeding out plants. They realized that, oh, this is a $10 plant, and I'm pulling it out and throwing it away. Why don't we make a nursery and sell them on? So it sort of became obvious that they should, they should do that as a service, but they were also... You know, they were just, they were that good. They were, they were propagate, propagating themselves. Uh, now, that sort of selection is what we, the people, need to realize we're looking for. We're looking for what Bill Mollison calls phases of abundance. You won't get that at Home Depot. You won't, people don't sell nursery plants that way. They, they, they sell them for uh, scarcity 
and 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 difficulty to replicate. Where we're looking for 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 self replication and extension from there. So we'll, we'll select what what grows easily, what grows with least attention, and what still has really good product and value for space, um, um, space um, value within the garden. So um, what will happen is it will just grow and grow and grow. Once we get on the theme of this, it will become the way we live and the way we 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 respectfully help our neighbours. Yeah, and I, I mean, when you look at it from the opportunity standpoint during the establishment phase, if you're propagating wolfberry in your backyard, um, you're not even worried about competing with a box store or even most conventional nurseries because they've never even heard of it, let alone are they able to sell it. And you can teach the person you sell it to exactly how you propagated it, and sometimes they'll take on and begin doing it themselves but just as just as often they'll say, well, I don't want to do that part, and they'll come back to you for more plants anyway. It, it, it's not that you have to control everything, and I think that is a big part of what makes what we're doing different is our willingness to be free with the information and realize that it, there's no the, the opportunity is so much bigger than all of the people that are involved right now. There's no there's no need or or no desire, frankly, for anybody to control the whole thing. No, none at all, because it just keeps getting a little more interesting and refined all the time. I mean, out of the 800 varieties of non-hybrid tomato that you could select, um, it's taken me a long time to get down to, say, uh, I, I use a, what's called a pink Thai tomato, um, which doesn't boil in our hot summer and literally grows itself just about. Um, it took me quite a long time to come to that. Um, sweet potato, um, it's been 20 years of selection for me. Gradually, I, I started to work out which were the better sweet potatoes uh, that grow for me. And the selection I made in the end, um, which I'm, I'm at now, I might, I might refine a bit further, is an old variety that's got a, um, a – it's red on the outside of the root, and just under the surface, it's white. Um, it grows pretty easily, but it tastes like normal potato with cream. It's like a creamy, normal potato taste. So um, my students that come through uh, like it because it, it tastes similar to potato, um, and um, they can eat it for longer as a main starch. So I can I can oversupply sweet potato in this climate. But the other thing is I made the selection on cooking time. It only takes 10 minutes to cook, where a lot of sweet potatoes take 20 minutes. That saves me 10 minutes of gas or 10 minutes of wood, wood, uh, wood fuel. That's an enormous saving over time. I, so I just made those selections. Now, I can tell that story to someone who wants to come and, and get sweet potato from me. And, and so it goes. There's many stories. There's, a, there's an endless amount of stories within permaculture. And you're saying we need to be doing this work in all of our regions, all of our microclimates, because just because that tomato and potato work really well for you, there's no guarantee it will in my climate. It might actually do pretty well. My summers are as hot as yours, but my winters are a lot colder. So there, there might be some refinement from there, or it might be a totally different result as I spend my time doing my research. And that that's the key opportunity is how, how different things are just a few hundred miles away. Oh, yeah. I, I would guarantee it will be different. I'll be pretty sure. I bet on it. Um, yeah. And that's what makes. That's what gives us our identity. That's what gives us our local identity, our local fingerprint, our local personality. That's what makes 
the people of the land and the land of the people. This is how we re-identify ourselves as individuals who are a little bit different. So our land's a bit different. The way we produce our needs are a little bit different. And that gives us that feeling of, hey, I'm from that area and this is my identity. This is what makes me local to this area. And now you have so many varieties of elements, not just plants and animals, but also our water systems, our, our, our housing systems, our energy systems, our waste systems. They, they identify us to the land and gives us, gives us that, that local interest. So we can trade between regions, but the region is specific. And, and that gives, so we're not homogenized to all, you know, globally all be the same. I mean, we are not the same and our land's different, our weather's different. Uh, our, our design possibilities are endlessly different and it gives us that it makes the landscape much more interesting when we start to apply this way of thinking with our food security our supply lines um, everything becomes more secure and 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 it's something that we we can apply with all the new appropriate technology and buildings and and, and plant and animal materials um, and if we if we keep it all homogenized and 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 supplied by a box uh, a box store sort of variation, then we're extremely vulnerable um, and um, we're not very secure at all. So we 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 there's value to some of that, but we need to get back to our identity through the land and the way we interact with it. So we're we're primary producers from the land. We're processors of that primary production. Uh, we provide services. Um, to the people there and then we have the way we entertain ourselves and regulate ourselves with the arts and entertainment things like that we need to we need to get back to the the, the a portfolio of careers around those processes uh, connected to land and and that's all an extension of permaculture and, and that's the way I think we have to go to get back to a real security and the traditional connected to the land individual that we, we look to is the farmer. And the farmer has changed a lot in a few hundred years. Um, it used to be that most people were farmers. And today, very few people are actually farmers. And a lot of farmers are more business people than farmers. But I think there's also monetarily a real future for people in permaculture to take more of the farming, ranching uh, avenue toward things, specifically using animals uh, not just to establish landforms and establish systems, but to actually make a profit in the early days. Because, you know, right now in the United States, pastured poultry and pastured pork and pastured egg uh, production from pastured poultry, all three of those uh, are, are through the roof with demand. Uh, not that they have anywhere near the demand that, you know, a grocery store does, but compared to the supply, it's it's totally out of whack. And that these animals can be done much like what Mark Shepard's done with his place to establish that land farm and give you time where you can actually make a living and not lose the farm, you know, in a real, very real term until these longer term overstory productive features come into fruition. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's a lot smaller than, than a lot of people think. If you want to come down to a crop garden, I've got a demonstration running here on on just less than an acre um, if you look at that, the, the, the access ways around it, you could probably say it's an acre, but it's less than an acre of crop. Um, and um, 
that's being processed and fertilized and, and, and tracted with 50 chickens. Wow. And um, it's 12 main electric net gardens in shape, and the chickens move every two weeks. So in 24 weeks, they're back where they started, and, and your crops go through on that cycle, six-month cycle. And uh, round and round the outside now as well is the compost production chicken system with 35 birds. So I've got 85 birds. So on egg production alone, I'm averaging 60 to 70 eggs a day. Um, but I'm pulling 300 square meters, um, just less than a tenth of an acre, let's say, of crop every two weeks. So I'm planting it every two weeks. I'm picking it every two weeks. We're consuming it every two weeks. But that's all sellable. That's an income for one or two people out of less than an acre. And the soil just continuously improves. Uh, so we're doing that as a demonstration of an income in a small way. Um, and, and what we're really doing is uh, we're, it's a very, very micro farm. And I think the most productive farms are the smaller micro farms per square meter. But you're farming like a gardener. So you're farming with a gardening attitude. And, and on a larger farm, you're farming with a gardening landscaping attitude. So, and then when you come down to gardening in the suburbs and even on balconies, you're gardening like a farmer. Huh. You're in a small space and you're, you're, you're gardening, but you're thinking like a farmer. You, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the paddock shift chicken model you just described you're doing with your, your like one acre piece. All it seems to me like, and I guess it's because of your constant, you know, hammering on pattern, pattern recognition, pattern recognition. It makes me think of square foot gardening, only the squares are a lot bigger. So like Mel Bartholomew's work from all the way back in the 70s of managing by the square foot and what you've done with this acres, you've just taken it up and you're mad managing by the square 300 meters. And, yeah. and, and, and that is the same pattern being used, and like you said, now it's back and forth. The gardener's acting like the farmer, and the farmer's acting like the gardener. That's it. And we're coming down to sort of what is a farmer? Well, a farmer can be on a balcony, actually. Um, you can farm in pots, if you like. I mean, what I'm doing is I'm, 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 I'm 12 of an acre square gardening. So it's, it's, there are, there are 12, 12 gardens at 300 square meters, and it's a 12 of an acre. So it's a twelfth of an acre shift every time. And, and what's interesting with it is that because it's absolutely regular, it's every two weeks you've got to move. And you've got to get your crop out before that 24th week because the chickens are coming. And they'll eat it. And <laughs> that we've got to move them somewhere. Um, and they've got to move onto that garden. Um, and, uh, but every irrigation system in all the 12 gardens is exactly the same row. So... Um, they all shift as well, so they shift along. So every all twelve irrigation sets, which are eight rows, forty-three meters long, the garden seven meters wide, they all inter, they, they all interchange, so they'll move. Now, when the chickens are there, that same irrigation is their watering system. They're all their water. So it it it, it all interacts together. So you've made some things uniform just for the practicality of shift. And, and now the new system is working around the outside, which cleans the outside of the garden and leaves three cubic meters of compost every week dotted around the garden. And I'm trying to get it in the same sequence so it's arriving at the right place at the right time. It's three cubic meters of high-grade compost 
de- deposited by egg-laying chickens who are not being fed any surplus from outside except food scraps, manure, and, and the paddock mulch they've, manure, they've manured in their bedding the week before. And this is, uh, um, I mean, this is the sort of thing we're doing to try and bring things back to a bit of common sense um, and improve the, the, the landscape and the soils and people's livings all at the same time. This is, you know, that, I think that's, that's physical patterning in time and space, um, and that's typical of what a lot of us in permaculture are trying to do for people. And you're doing this all with egg layers, but there's no reason that we couldn't have our egg layers going around the circumference making all this wonderful compost and be pushing a broiler chicken uh, run for meat birds through the center of the garden. Or vice versa, we could flip that around. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, there's other animal interactions that we could talk about that, that play into that as well. But I, I use dual-purpose birds, so after one oh. or two years of egg laying, I can still put them into, into uh, a pressure cooker soup production. <laughs> they, they wouldn't be such good roasting birds, but they're okay to go through a soup you know, um, situation. Um, I've also now... Um, got my cattle laneway with a giant paddock shift system. So there's 53 gates on the electric laneway around the farm. And the, and the cows move every two to three days. I mean, my cows complain if the grass gets below six inches. They literally complain to us. We, we know there's time to shift. And the only landscape on this farm that looks like everybody else is grazing around here is the laneway. The laneway looks like everybody else. I realized this the other day talking to my students. I said, look at the laneway. The laneway looks like everybody else's farm, doesn't it? And we don't. We just use the laneway for transport. Uh, um, and now I lock off about 20 meters of that laneway every night. And in there is a back scratcher, a water trough, a mineral block, and a feed bath. So I just put a bit of extra feed in there, get all my beef cows in there in, at night, and lock them in, and they're quite happy. They camp out there for the night in a short section of laneway, and then in the morning we open it up and they go back into their their adjoining cells to that section of laneway, and then I I pick up thirty or forty manure drops every night, and that that then goes to other systems. Sometimes that goes straight down to the compost chickens and starts assembling the the compost the the chicken compost that they construct for me. So the cows. Are, are interacting back to the chickens, and the chickens are interacting back to the cows in, at the open pastures. So it's, it's all kinds of interesting connections that just make the landscape get better and better and the production healthier and healthier. You know, something you said there that I, I keyed in on was you got a dual-purpose bird, and it may not make the best roasting chicken, uh, but you can pressure cook it and you use it on the farm you know, to feed yourself, feed your students. One of the things we've been trying to do is figure out how to set up a working model of permaculture farms that are also replicatable so that we can create more and more of them. And one of the goals that we've set for this is no matter what we're doing to make sure there's enough profit to keep the farm operating, the very first real goal is for the farm to feed the people that run the farm. Now, a few hundred years ago even, or even 150 years ago, that's how every single farm was set up. I'm not saying there were permaculture farms, but that that key component was, well, first thing, we've got to feed Ma, Pa, the kids, and, 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 and Grandpa. And, and today, that's kind of been left aside. And when we look at things like running birds for eggs, 
they may not be the most marketable birds for you know running poultry for market, but they certainly are part of that component of feeding the farmer. Oh yeah, I mean that was how you identified your profitable crops. Once you grow all your own food and the food, uh, the, 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 and you grow diversity, and the crops that indicated they grew really easily were the ones you made the the, the extension crops. Now today we have more diversity than ever before. We have a much much larger diversity possible to trial, and farmers aren't doing that. They're sticking to the old traditional stuff, and there is there is more. Non-traditional crops people have never heard of um, that we could we could be extended, and that will enrich our local culture. That will make the diversity difference. That'll make our new identity in landscape. Yeah, I mean, I learned about jute mallow from you, for example, and you know, I planted a few seeds of that last year, and we ended up with with a good crop as far as leaf crop went, but the seed yield was through the roof. And then I had this seed that no one had even heard of. I gave it away to every student that came here. I'm like, take some. Please plant this. It's not really well known in the United States. And that's, that's just like one minuscule example uh, of, of, a, of a really useful crop. In fact, one of your interns, Nick Bertner, was here. And when he looked at that, he said, I know this crop. I harvested this at the PRI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we tend to do that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Jude... Uh, Michelle Phantom from the Seed Savers here in Byron Bay wrote the books, uh, Seed Savers Handbook. Um, he, a few years ago, gave me Ethiopian cabbage. And he said, try this cabbage. It's kind of a, a tall kale-type stick cabbage. It's really hardy. And, and I just casually took it. I tried it, and it was really strong, very easy to grow. And uh, I got a big seed yield out of that, um, a very easy to produce seed. I gave it to people in a lot of different places, and they would ring me up, and they'd say, wow, there's something coming up in my garden that looks like a cabbage, but it's growing like a weed. Uh, and I, oh, I know what that is. Um, and every time it was the same story, I said, let it go. You know, you've got this incredible productive brassica. I've never seen anything like it. And we just spread it around, and, they, they'd, and it's giving people easy, very easy food. And, and when you hand that over to a chef, a creative chef, so we have two chefs here in our kitchen. We produce 30,000 meals a year because we have an average of 30 people on the property. We try and feed them all. We probably get 85 to 90% of our food off the property. And, and there's stuff that you're giving them. And the, and, then a, and the new foodie type chefs, they want to try something different. They just like, if it's different texture, different taste or different colors, it's all potentially a new foodie type thing. And, and they just take that, Ethiopian cabbage and, and they rave about its taste being slightly like kale and uh, half like cabbage and it's got a particular texture and they can do a creative thing with it and um, that's what we should be doing. That, that's what's going to make life more interesting and more healthy. Well, I think and there's another opportunity you're hitting on there. I think that when people think of farming anymore, they think, well, I farm, and then there's a buyer that buys all my crops, like the wholesale model. And that with, when you're growing this high-quality, diverse stuff, you should be selling it to the direct-to-consumer or selling to, like like you said, like chefs, like boutique restaurants and things like that. They'll pay top dollar for this stuff because they can't find it anywhere else. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and the recipe book of your location – uh, with a date on it. So January recipes, February recipes, March recipes, you know, every month of the year to location in relation to the diversity that's possible. 
are the ultimate recipe books. There's a whole load of recipe books to be written out there because it doesn't stop just with the cooked recipe, but also the storage systems and preservation systems, but also with a date and a place location. It's no good knowing how you 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 cook Canadian food if you're in Texas. I mean, you need to know how to cook Texas food in Texas and preserve Texas food in Texas. It's location relevant. Those are the real recipe books. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a bestseller. But it's a bestseller worldwide in every location to date. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I also think that there is a real underappreciation for how big the market is for things that people are not familiar with. If you, like you say, can teach them how to use them, because I've heard horror stories from people who are like, we grew all this stuff, like, you know, something is very unfamiliar to people in America, especially going back a few years. Now it's getting to be more well-known. It's like Armenian cucumbers. You have these huge, giant uh, snake melons, but they taste like a cucumber. They don't get bitter even when they're huge. And the one guy said he had took plenty of them down to his local uh, church's um, food kitchen or what have you, and they ended up finding out that they were all thrown away because the people that were preparing them didn't know what they were and didn't know what to do with them. So the other side of this is the education of the consumer, or in a case of charity, education of the, the charity recipient. This is what this is, and this is what you do with it. And that's kind of what you're saying with these, these cookbooks and things. Oh, uh, yeah. You, there's got to be a storyline. Storyline today is, is uh, the way things sell anyway. So you, you must write the story at the same time because people won't be familiar and, and as you write more and more stories about the, these situations, then people get excited. This is the largest economy that we'll ever see in the history of the world. The permaculture economy, which is the, the environmental and ecologically beneficial uh, economy, is the largest economy. We just um, we won't admit it at the moment. We need to um, just realise production and consumption economy depletes the base resource by default. Just because it, it, you know, consumption is encouraged, um, and we produce and, and convince people they have to consume it um, in a way that, that depletes our base resources, you know, um, and our finite resources, and eventually depletes our, our soils um, is completely flawed. I mean, it obviously cannot continue. But when you move towards an ecological and environmental economy, which permaculture design is, then you increase the base resource, which is your soils, your, your soils and, your, and, and the elements that actually benefit the environment. So inevitably, this is the largest economy that we'll ever move into. And we just need to realize that. It's kind of obvious when you get in amongst these design systems that this is infinitely large. And, and it makes the production consumption economy that we're presently in, that we're screaming and, 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 and crying about the loss of, we should be grateful that it's time that we move over into something really sensible and, and it goes on indefinitely. Well, I, I agree. And I think that most people don't really get that the, the current path leads toward a, a really bad place. And I'm not just talking about it now from an ecological standpoint. I'm talking about it from simply a, a resource management standpoint that you cannot continuously take from anything forever without a consequence. It's impossible. And when you look at a, a, a scientific fact that the largest export from the United States, which has some of the most amazing farmland in the world, by tonnage 
is topsoil. You cannot get away from the fact that we're denuding our, our arable lands and destroying what is a big part of what's made us so successful because we, we, in America, we don't have the prosperity we do, uh, because of TV sets and computers. We have that prosperity because of the farmland. And I had a guy in, um, Iowa asked me, he said, do you think we're turning Iowa into a desert? And I said, if you had not been blessed with relatively flat terrain, good rainfall, and incredibly deep topsoil, it would have been a desert a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, it's the USDA um, Soil Conservation Department. Um, and they they contacted me after I did the um, online course, and there's some really good people in the USDA Soil Conservation Department who are teaching, starting to teach in this direction. And they contacted me, and they said, "We like your what you've you've done with this online course. We need to move quickly. The soil we've got real problems. There are some really good farmers out to." Um, America that they're they're very traditional large crop farmers large large like ag- agricultural farmers um, and they and they they realize that they have to change we'd like you to be able to teach like this to uh, fifteen thousand soil conservation advisors would you be going would you would you would you be willing to do this um, and um, I looked. I, I thought they were joking. I thought, "What? Well, this is a connection I, I couldn't imagine." And uh, there's a guy out there, Ray uh, Archuleta, his name is, and he's been featured in Acres magazine. And uh, your listeners should get on to the um, uh, USD, uh, uh, US, USDA uh, websites and and look at some of his videos, Ray Archuleta. Um, Incredible. It's really moving in this direction. And they would really like, they asked for my help. They said, like, we like your style of teaching. We can move this quickly. Would you be, would you be able to do this if we can get it into the USDA and get them to approve that we, we start teaching quickly like this with an online system? Because we've got to move. We know the soil is in trouble. We know the Midwest, it, it looks, you fly over the Midwest on a clear day, uh, across this, um, you know, from east to west or west to east, you you, you see some very unusual um, soil patterning going on out there with saltation and variations of of, of uh, vegetation patterning. It almost like looks like there's a sort of skin disease going across the surface um, where where the landscape is extremely stressed. Um, and and some of the really good people out there in in, in the agricultural and soil conservation agricultural advice department. They know. They're trying to make a move. They're trying to help this. Um, I, I was very impressed. I was really pleased to see that they, they realized. Yeah, it, it is encouraging to hear because, you know, it, it's not the the normal course of what we see uh, in, in modern agriculture. And, you know, I'm glad you're saying these things because I think a lot of times it, I have, you know, people that listen that are more in line with conventional farming practices, and they think that when I talk about all of the harm that's being done, that I'm being, um, I guess, adversarial towards them as individuals. And I realize they simply don't know what to do. A lot of them are always on the edge of losing what they have. Um, 
they're, you know, a lot of times wrapped into subsidies that require them to do certain things, whether they'd rather not. Um, and it, it's really a massive educational process. And frankly, for a farmer that's got, you know, a thousand acres currently under cultivation, it's, it, it's a transitional process. They can't just switch off what they're doing today with corns and bean and, and, and have a food forest on a thousand acres tomorrow. Uh, with, with chickens, goats, and cattle running up and down through the aisles. And, and I understand that. And I think a lot of times when we're teaching, like, there's a better way to do this, that people get the, 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 the misconception that we actually believe that we can take this, this, you know, USS Titanic, uh, massive shift that's cruising forward that is modern agriculture and turn it on a dime. And we understand there's a transitional phase to this. Oh, yeah. And, and there's such good people. I mean, and, they, and they've got capability. They, they've used ingenuity. They've used all these, you know, appropriate technology. I, you know, we're going to have to use our ability with appropriate technology to turn this around. I mean, um, the people who, who, who kind of look forward to some kind of collapse, I think they really need to spend some time in a war zone to realize what a collapse is like. It's going to be nasty, and you wouldn't want to go. Too bad it is. I mean, that's not – I mean, your psychological damage, perhaps from physical tragedy – um, no, we, if we can turn this around and use appropriate technology to help us do it, we, we, we have incredible ability. Um, our technology is amazing. I, I've got nothing against technology, and I've definitely got nothing against the farmers. I mean, I, I really like working with the farming folks. They're practical people. They, they, they don't mind working hard, and they have connections to the land. Um, and, and when you see that change move in like that, you can, it gives you great hope. So I was very pleased to get this uh, approach. I've just uh, sent you some of that information there, Jack, um, so you can, you can pick up on that. I'll make sure I include it in the show notes. And, you know, the technology thing's interesting. If we apply the technology that's here with a different uh, method, we can go a long way towards solving problems with existing technologies. Not everything has to be a new technology to go really fast. So there's these things called great alls that basically the, the you know, counties and, and, and cities and states use to put in bar ditches. They just drive down and they make this ditch. Well, they have them now that have GPS built into them where you could take the USGI contour data, assuming the land's not totally eroded, and dial in a contour line and have this machine basically drive a swale in um, because it follows the contour being told what to do by a GPS satellite. And if you start thinking about how you could harness that to terraform landscapes, you know, on a really big scale, it's quite exciting. Oh, yeah, that sort of thing could turn us around very quickly. That, that's uh, uh, Applying just a little bit of the surplus economy in that direction would be all it would take to make things really start to move. And um, teaching this uh, right the way through... Uh, the age groups would um, would then sort of anchor it right in. Um, one thing that happened uh, was kind of interesting with the online courses. A lot of people said to me, their kids are watching the course online and they're loving it. And they're going yes. around the house quoting what I'm saying to their, their parents. And then um, they, the kids keep asking their parents if they can watch the videos. Um, and uh, especially things like earthworks um, and, and, you know, the animal systems, all these things. And then parents kept uh, quite a few inquiries saying, would you make a homeschooling DVD based around permaculture? Because we, this is what we want to homeschool our kids with. 
Yeah, we actually have a member of our audience that's developing an entire curriculum for homeschoolers based on permaculture principles. And that was a lady that came. She was a former school teacher, kind of fed up with conventional schooling. She came to one of our our, uh, permaculture uh, classes here, and we just said, we want every student to come up. It was like the last night where you give away, give away stuff and everybody's just being social. Everybody come up and you have 30 seconds to present an idea. You know, and it starts with a 30 second idea presented on a whiteboard. And then it turns into this entire concept. And what you're saying about the kids is true. I can't tell you how many times I got emails from people that took your course out of this community and it's, you know, dad and two kids sitting on both sides of them with, with the permaculture design manual, a laptop up watching what you're teaching. So I can tell you that, you know, what you're saying isn't just one off here and there, that this is this is what's happening everywhere now. Yeah, well that's very that's very encouraging. And that would be impossible to achieve in a face to face course. That that was some of the results that you know I I didn't I didn't see that coming. Um and um we I also had quite a few people um email me and say, Ah, oh, um I was taking a course, and I've been the one keen about this. But my my wife or my husband, depending on the uh, on the couple, have been watching over my shoulder, and and they've been drawn in to watching, and they weren't interested before. But now it's in my lounge room, and I'm watching it. They're watching it with me. They want to take the course too. And now we've got a stronger we've got a stronger marriage because we're actually we're we're really doing this together, and it's sort of unified us. In action. Now that's a blessing. That's really good because uh, I know we we're not going to have a stable community if we don't drop the divorce rate down a lot. You know. Um, so if this helps people like you know form that that major partnership of marriage and make it stable, we we don't we don't get stability without stable families. You know. So we we've got to do this together um, as a people, but that definitely as a family, we've got to all feel like this is something that we all understand and. And, and encourage each other through. You know, there's a, there's a healing you're talking about there. We talked about it with Vorbets. We talked now now you're on the divorce rate. I think the reason that if you don't try to like the person that's not receptive yet, if you don't try to push it on them, and like you know, so one spouse is taking the course and they're sitting there watching it on a TV or the laptop or what have you, and going through the coursework, and the other person is just getting it from the side. And you start to hear what you're saying, or if it's another course, what some other teacher is saying, it starts to resonate with anybody because these are human concepts. And I think part of the reason that we have so much wrong in the world, you know, you can blame technology, but technology is just as capable as, of good as it is of evil, right? I mean, it's all in whose hands it's in and what's being done with it, what's the goal. The, the part of the problem is that we are so disconnected from natural systems, that we're not, it's not that we're, that humans are be, are the problem, it's that we're not acting like human beings anymore. The, the human being evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, regardless of what you believe our origins are from a religious standpoint, we walked with our feet on the soil, we touched the earth, we, we cultivated plants, we interacted with animals, we did all of these things. And it is only in a very short period of modern times with cheap energy that we've been able to live disconnected. And that disconnection is like chopping off your arm and then wondering why you can't throw a baseball anymore. Well, of course you can't. You don't have an arm anymore. And, and fortunately for us, it's not, as, it's not as permanent, right? You chop your arm off, you wait a couple of days, it ain't going back on. But 
with our disconnection from, from Earth, as soon as we start to put our hands back in the soil, start to work with the animals, that, that connection is, is almost instantly like a, like a computer reboot. It turns back on. And I think in these families you're talking about where the kids are getting involved, where the spouse is getting involved, it's like they have a hole in their existence. And they don't even know what that hole is. But then as soon as you like, it's like a puzzle. When you put the piece in, it fits. You know, oh, that's what's supposed to go there. And it's a very big longing that people have in their lives. And they're trying to replace it with MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. And it ain't going to happen. But you give them something they can actually feel, and that works. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and there is some belief that because we're now, we're actually, we have the intention after engaging in these design processes that we intend to design our way out of this. It's an evolution in the way we think and it's making our, our brains evolve in a different way. So the new neural neurosciences of uh, more understanding of, of the way the brain works, the, what's now being called the plasticity of the brain, um, and because we've got very, very accurate ultrasounds, we can see more of the, the, the electricity in the brain and the way that uh, synapses fire across the, um, across the cortex of the brain. Um, we, it is now considered that when, when we started to uh, write you know, read and write with symbols, we grew an extra small layer around our brain because we were we were functioning that way. We were starting to actually symbolize and describe the universe around us uh, with reading and writing. Um, now we're actually going that stage further and we're, we're looking for intentional design connectivity that improves the universe around us. So we're engaging in these processes that facilitate very creative events. And that's, that's a whole different way of using our intelligence, using our, our, our brain. So it, it, it is considered that we're actually developing, we're evolving. Um, and, and it's, and through that we're becoming sensitive, sensitive to, uh, the, the creation around us, the universe around us. So we're becoming sensitive designers. And that's, that's, that's an evolution. And, and we're using the indicators of the environment itself. We're using the indicators of ecology. We're using the indicators of an improved reality um, all around us as success. If, if the environment's getting better, if the soil's getting better, if the water's getting cleaner, if the air's getting cleaner, if, if communities getting safer and, 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 and more enjoyable to be in amongst, then we, we're getting a result. And you and I, um, you, you teach permaculture, Jack, and I teach permaculture, and we use our students' results as, as indicators that we're teaching okay. Our students are active. Um, they're going out and becoming teachers themselves. That's the indicator. So we, it, it's a system that grows greater good all the time. And, that, and when we're using that as our indicators, we've got an ethical science indicator um, that we use to gauge our actions. I, I completely agree. I think that a lot of folks wonder, you know, how do I find a good teacher in permaculture? And I'd say, look at their students. And if their students are doing good things, then you know you've got a good teacher. And you might quickly find that one of their students might be a great teacher for you as well, because uh, they might be more accessible. Uh, depending on where you're at and what you want to learn. Some people want a full design course. Some people want to learn, how do I transform this piece of my backyard? 
um, it, it, it really is the case that that's kind of where we're moving. But what I, I think really excited me about what you just said is I remember listening to you one time talking about how today your students move faster than you do. They, they come up and they get going and they become productive uh, even quicker than you yourself are today because they're in that kind of next phase. And I wonder as we teach our children these principles from a very young age so that it's not, you know, the disillusioned 20-something that realizes everything's screwed up and then finds permaculture and gets switched on uh, and, and starts to move fast. But the person that, you know, by the time they're 16, instead of, you know, thinking about one day maybe I'll take a PDC, is probably qualified to teach one, and how fast that next generation, uh, people like like your your uh, your youngest child who are, are growing up surrounded by it, how fast they're going to move with design and restoration uh, given the opportunity. Oh, yeah, they're our best advert, actually. The permaculture kids are pretty incredible, even from the early students. Uh, both my... Um, uh, uh, first son and daughter, they're in their 30s now. They both work in permaculture uh, systems. And um, um, my daughter still works with, with us, uh, booking in uh, people into courses that she's permaculture education and, and, and permaculture sales through our website. My son has his own consultancy business and tools business. But many many of the early early, early permaculture people have found their their children have come back into permaculture or they've never left it as they've grown up. But the most recent children are quite different and um, they're, they're, they're our best advert. Um, we couldn't imagine what the young people growing up with it now are going to be like. We, there's no way you'd imagine the level of ability that they will have, the level of awareness they will have. That's one of the most encouraging things. So we shouldn't limit that. We should let that go and... and Keep it moving. Um, I'm very lucky to have a, 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 a young daughter. She'll be four um, next month. And um, I would definitely say she's my best advert at the moment. <laughs> she's actually been on our podcast. We, we, the one time we were interviewing, we had her uh, on there. I think it was a couple of years ago, so she wasn't quite using full words yet. But that, that recording actually exists where I'm interviewing you, and you can hear her uh, in the background. That was one of the cooler moments on the show. Well, she, uh, I catch her now sometimes teaching in the classroom when I'm, uh, I'm just coming in. She's got in front of me, you know, just, just under four years old, and she's, she's entertaining all the, all the students in the classroom, um, talking about, um, basically talking about systems, but um, just in a very entertaining way. Uh, well, isn't that the case, though, that they do mimic what they see? And if we, you know, a lot of people complain about, you know, kids today. Well, if, if, if you were giving them something positive to, positive to mimic and expound upon, then maybe you'd have less to complain about. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no shortage of stimuli around here. And, and people come here and they say, oh, my goodness, you've got a child as well and you're doing all this. And it must be so hard. So actually, that's a blessing. Uh, <laughs> it's really, I, it's made it so much easier. And everybody says that it comes through here. They say, oh, you know, your daughter's made it so pleasant here. It's so entertaining. Um, but it is the same with the animals as well. You know, people say, oh, you've got dairy cows on the farm. That's like a, a prison sentence. So it's, no, it's actually a blessing having dairy cows. They really set the theme of the day, and there's all kinds of wonderful interactions. Um, it's your choice the way you do this, but um, from the smallest to the largest, the interactions are all pleasant. They're great. 
Um, and we have this wonderful permaculture saying, the problem's the solution. It just depends the way you look at it. I mean, the glass is half empty or it's half full. Uh, and you, 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 and when we, we, we orientate towards solutions, uh, we don't orientate towards the negative. We, we take it on board. Okay, there are problems out there, but let's design positive solutions. So permaculture is based in positivism, orientates towards solutions, um, and um, the problem becomes the solution, and then we design it to be an asset. It's, it, it, it's, it's hard for people to grasp that, but then as you start to interact, you realize that that, that is exactly how it works. The people out there, are, you know, the population of the world appear to be the problem. The reality is the population are the solution. And uh, we need that population right now. Um, and we need them to move in this direction. And then there isn't a problem. You know, there is a, a case that the people are the solution, too, when you start talking about things like how how your life changes when you're taking care of, of cattle or sheep or just chickens, and in my case, chickens and geese. That you know, it kind of holds you to the land a little bit more. But then, what that necessitates is if you'd like to go somewhere once in a while and and be there for more than a day, then you start having to bring more community into what you're doing with a farm. You you don't want to do it alone. It's a lot of work to begin with, but you're, you're absolutely tied to the land permanently unless you expand your your circle of community. And as you start to build some community on on a place, then when you're gone, someone else can look after the things that need to be done that you normally do, and vice versa so that both of you still have the freedom to occasionally do something like travel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, you're, 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 it's, it's a different level of engagement once you start the process. And, you, and, it, and it builds a level of understanding. So um, real quick, I, mean, I know we've held you a long time, and you've got a full day ahead of you because it was like 5.30 in the morning when you called me, and we've had you on for well over an hour now. But you, could you remind people again how they can see all these great videos you've been putting out and, and when your next online PDC starts? Yeah, so um, you can see all these free videos now that uh, are on jefflawton.com. That's G-E-O-F-F-L-A-W-T-O-N. So it's an English word spelling Jeff. Um, jefflawton.com you just put your uh, your email in um, so there's a it's just a, a, a connection of the email through to see all these uh, I think it's about 18 free videos we've got now we've been releasing one every Friday and they'll be released right up until the 29th of March I think this Friday we've got Cattle Laneway is the next one um, and then we've got an Earthworks um DVD, uh, the Earthworks video the week after, and then after that we've got this compost, mobile compost chicken system without grain. Um, but the 29th of March we release uh, the bookings into the course, so you can start booking into the course there. And, and we'll be explaining in full everything you get as well. So all, uh, you know, there'll be a, a beautiful PDF that we're producing now that everybody will be able to um, download. So jefflawton.com, uh, free videos every Friday up until the 29th of March, and then we'll go into the course, and there'll be about 12 weeks where we probably won't be able to release any free uh, videos until the course is over, and then hopefully we'll start again um, um, releasing our free videos, which we hope to do endlessly um, to extend the information out to people. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you taking all the time to be with us today, Jeff. If, if you had... Um 
you know, one thing you could say to the person that's looked at permaculture and has said it sounds great, but they're skeptical. Skeptical. They're like, well, why isn't all the why aren't all the farms being run this way now? Uh, you know, if it really works, why aren't why isn't it being done everywhere? Uh, what would you say to that person to get them to maybe open up a little bit more and learn a little bit more? Um, well, it's a it it it's a, a system that people are experiencing and learning, and it it it's one that's you know people are really enjoying the process of transition, moving from where we're at now to where we could be, and if it suddenly snapped in one big move, it would be just too much of a of a, of a, a shock. Um, it wouldn't be accepted very easily, and it wouldn't be very enjoyable. It would just be too much of a, a, of a dramatic event. It is starting to move quite quickly now, but it's been a transition. And with that comes that experience of all the learning change and understanding why we're changing. So I would say uh, jump on board, enjoy the journey, and um, realize that you're, you're, you're all welcome. Just, just as a final thought when you were saying that, I remembered hearing you, I don't remember what it was in, but saying that when you took your first PDC back in the 80s, you were like, well, this is just what everybody's going to do now, right? You were on fire, and it was almost a surprise that things didn't get adopted quicker. Do you feel like today we're a lot closer to what you expected then than we were at that time? Yeah, I thought that permaculture would be international policy by 1990, which made a big change for me in 1990 because I realized we weren't that close. Um, now it's a lot closer, but there's more. the problems are a lot bigger as well. But I think we are in exponential change, and a lot of that is the tech, information technology of the Internet. That's what's made the difference. A lot of us now have screen accessibility to learn what we want to learn, and it would appear we do want to learn this now. So we've done the groundwork, uh, we've done some of the very hard yards to get us where we're at, and we're ready now to move it very quickly. And luckily, we can we can move it quickly, because we will need to. Well, Jeff, thanks for all the work you've done. Thanks for joining us once again, uh, so early in the morning for yourself and, and making the accommodations for us. Uh, thanks for all you do and continue to do. And if there's anything we here at the TSP community can do for you, you let us know, and we're always here for you. My daughter's here to say goodbye. Can you say goodbye, Please, Jack? Put her on. You say hi. Bye. There you go. Bye. <laughs> you just got it. <laughs> and what, what's her name? Latifa. Latifa. So with that, I'll say, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Latifa and Jeff Lawton helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
someday we'll realize our change.